You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Welcome to the breakfast show. Tuesday morning, it is 7-13, 20th December 2022. And today, as usual, we will have three segments we will be talking about here at the breakfast show and very interesting topics <coughs> the first one we will be talking about exploring the world of silent, silent synapses and their supposed role in the formation of memories and we will be speaking to some experts in this regard we will have two callers um, after that we will move on to our second segment which is what is strep A bacterial infection and why are its cases on the rise and uh, lastly we'll we'll finish on a positive note Um, the last segment we will be talking about positivity um, and uh, how how we can uh, you know enter this new year with a positive mindset but uh, as usual, before we go to these uh, segments, we will go uh, over the news a little bit. So first of all, uh, let's, let's talk about the weather. Um, the weather is uh, getting a little bit better because uh, the cold is uh, the cold is going down. Temperatures are going up, which is good. However, it, is, it has started raining. Uh, I don't know if uh, people like the rain. Me personally, I don't prefer the rain, but I don't like the cold either. So it's uh, it's getting better. But uh, let's look at the outlook. So today we'll see cloud and rain clear the southeast to leave a dry, bright and breezy day for most. Northwestern areas will be windier with scattered blustery showers, however, still fairly mild. Uh, but tonight a clear start to the night for most, but showers continue in the northwest. Overnight cloud and rain will develop for most, but northeast Scotland will remain largely dry staying breezy. Uh, Tomorrow morning, cloud and rain will clear eastern England and it will be dry and bright here. Elsewhere across the UK, we'll see variable cloud and showers. These most frequent in the northwest. On Thursday, it will be cloudy and wet at times in the far south and north of Scotland, but elsewhere will be largely dry and bright. Friday will be cloudy with a brand of Band of rain moving in from the southwest, turning wintry over the hills in the north, staying unsettled on Saturday with rain and hill snow for parts of northern Scotland, and sunny spells and blustery showers on other places. So <clears throat> the weather, um, as you probably predicted as well, it's, it's going to be rainy for this week. Uh, temperatures are, temperatures will be around between 10 13 however um at night it gets a little bit colder with the temperature dropping till uh down to 4 degrees so we're still above the minus but i think next week it will, it will start getting colder because towards the end of the week um or rather in the beginning of the next week the temperatures are going quite low to you know, 2 3 even 1 degree celsius Anyways, now moving on uh, to the news for today. So newspaper headlines. Uh, the biggest news, I think, ambulance strikes today. 
because they are threatening lives and uh, we're gonna have um, taxis taking people to the hospitals possibly so the financial times leads with health secretary steve barclay holding crisis talks with ambulance unions amid warnings industrial action over pay could last six months the paper says the health secretary will meet three ambulance union bosses to discuss cover for 999 calls during their strike over pay on wednesday <coughs> it adds industrial action by nhs workers posed the biggest challenge to prime minister rishi sunak Talk to us, Rishi, headlines the Daily Express as the boss of nurses' union, Royal College of Nursing, Pat Cullen, called on the Prime Minister to personally negotiate a pay deal that she insists won't break the bank. The strike will involve staff in about a quarter of hospitals and community teams in England, all health boards in Northern Ireland and all but one in Wales. The action will not affect emergency care, but the action will affect routine services uh, like planned operations or appointments call a taxi writes the sun as it says some patients will be told to get themselves to a&e it warns even people who have a heart attack or stroke will not be able to get an ambulance during wednesday's walkout the i newspaper writes there will be uh, a postcode lottery on whether ambulances will be available for emergency care nhs face meltdown that's what the telegraph says it writes leaked data was showing ambulances were talking and uh, uh, an average of 90 minutes to reach heart attack uh, and stroke patients in some parts of the country hospitals and ambulance services across the east midlands northeast northwest and even wales have declared critical incidents the guardian writes the ambulance strike threatens the lives of 999 patients according to nhs bosses with some crews not reaching some patients who call 999 on wednesday until thursday or even friday hospital bosses tell the paper the strike will leave older people lying on a floor for days with a broken hip getting hypothermia and dying only patients at immediate risk of dying like those who have stopped breathing will be sent an ambulance during the 24 hour stoppage with everyone else having to make other arrangements writes the paper so you can expect that un- un- unless you stop breathing you won't have a chance of any ambulance even trying to reach you uh, so the it's not looking good this week this wednesday Mr Sunak has told the Daily Mail he will not back down over striking unions uh, unreasonable pay demands. The paper suggests the prime minister indicated he would tolerate months of disruption rather than risk an infla- inflationary wage price spiral. He says he's incredibly disappointed by the industrial action threatening to paralyze key services particularly at Christmas. particularly when it impacts people's health the times observes pressure on the nhs will be greater than on the busiest days of the year like new year's eve or a heat wave one anonymous nhs ambulance chief tells the paper the best we can hope for 
is that everyone stays indoors, no one falls over, no one gets ill, and no one has a car crash. Very, very unlikely. Conditional critical. Headlines, the Metro as it pictures the health secretary at a hospital besides of a young girl while her mother confronts him, demanding more support for staff under horrific pressure. Sarah Pennington Ord also told Mr. Barclay how a procedure for her daughter was pushed back by five days due to a bed shortage. The health secretary defended the government, saying that uh, saying an extra $6.6 billion for the NHS over two years was announced in the autumn statement. You are not walking... You are, wo- you are working nurses to the bone, writes the mirror, as it too pictures the health secretary being challenged by Miss Pennington Ord at King's College Hospital. The mother, who has a child with cystic fibrosis, told the paper his visit to the hospital appeared no more than a photo opportunity. The mirror accuses Mr. Barclay of if refusing to resolve the NHS dispute. The Daily Star has blunt words for TV star Jeremy Clarkson, who said he was horrified to have caused so much hurt over a column about the the Duchess of Sussex. A plea to the end. Plea to end strikes as NHS face meltdown is the Telegraph's headline. It says that with nurses taking part in their latest stoppage, the health secretary, Steve Barclay, will meet unions to try to avert a planned walkout by ambulance crews on Wednesday. The paper's leader, accuses government ministers of taking the situation less as they are drafting in the army less seriously than they should. It suggests that as uh, as well as drafting in the army to drive emergency vehicles, police and volunteers should also be used. So as we can see, all the papers, all the headlines are about one thing very, very heavily about the nurses' walkout, uh, the strike and... Uh, Let's let's have a look at what is the reason for the for the for the strike for what's happening to the nurses. So about ten thousand NHS nurses in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland are to strike for the second time in less than a week in protest over the pay. So the biggest issue they want to highlight is their pay. Their obviously, I I think they are also being overworked. But uh, if you're being paid for b- doing some extra work, maybe you will, uh, you will, you know, keep going. But with little pay, more work, obviously they had enough. And Wednesday we'll see um, ambulance staff in England and Wales walk out too, unless meeting later uh, with the health secretary can avert it. Steve Barclay has invited three unions representing paramedics to talk. Uh, it following it follows a warning of extensive disruption to service at at a very challenging time of year for the NHS. The joint letter was sent out by health chief to NHS trusts and integrated cares boards in um, England, urging hospitals to free up beds by safely discharging patients ahead of industrial action by ambulance crews. Measures should also be put in place to make sure ambulance patient handovers are kept to no more than 15 minutes. Uh, Nurses uh, staged their biggest ever strike in the history of the NHS last week. Nearly 10,000 of their staff were absent on Thursday and 16,000 appointments 
and surgeries had to be rescheduled and thus just in England alone. So Tuesday's 12-hour walkout, which starts at 8 a.m., could cause similar disruption, although services such as uh, such as urgent um, cancer care will continue. Uh, but the, the strike involves nurses in about a quarter of hospitals and community teams in England, all health boards in Northern Ireland, on, uh, all but one health board in Wales. Uh, nurses are not striking in Scotland. Um, so the protected services include uh, chemotherapy, emergency cancer services, um, dialysis, critical care units, neonatal and pediat- pediatric intensive care, along with some areas of mental health and learning disability and autism services as well. So, obviously, why are these uh, strikes happening? One one reason is the pay uh but let's let's look at the numbers what's uh, causing this trouble in England and Wales most NHS staff have already received a pay um a pay rise of roughly 1400 pounds this year which is about 4% of of an average um uh, nurse pay the royal college of nursing the rcn union wants a 19% pay rise 5% above the rpi inflation rate which currently stands at 14%, saying its members have received years of below inflation pay increases. So the government has increased the nurses' pay. However, with the inflation rising by 14%, uh, the 4% pay rise they have been given is uh, not enough, according to the nurses. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said the pay offer to nurses is appropriate and fair, despite pressure from health leaders and some former conservative ministers to rethink. But the RCN General Secretary Pat Cullen said he should ask himself why nurses were taking unprecedented strike action, sacrificing a day's pay and highlighted worries over patient safety and the future of the NHS. Calling for talks with Mr Sunak, Ms Cullen said, let's get this wrapped up by Christmas. I will negotiate with him at any point to stop nursing staff and patients going into the new year facing such uncertainty. But if this government isn't prepared to do the right thing, we'll have no choice but to continue in January, and that will be deeply regrettable. The government maintains the nurses' demands are unaffordable and the recommendation of an independent pay review body in setting wages have been followed. Health Secretary Steve Barkley said it was disappointing. Uh, it was disappointing union members were striking, despite the impact of patients. So there's a, there's a there's uncertainty on both sides. The government says that you know we don't want to pay more. We can't afford to pay the nurses more than we already are now. The nurses are saying the inflation is so high that uh, what you are giving us is it's not worth it. So uh, it's a big clash between uh, the nurses, the, the, this department, uh, and the government, and this is causing a lot of problems because, um, as you always know, these health health departments, doctors, GPs, nurses, they are very very crucial to everyday life. Um, I think whenever I have been to an emergency or A and E, it's always packed. So this this department never rests working all day 
all week, all month, and uh, all year, and uh, they're demanding for a higher pay. I don't know what the government can afford or what not at this point, but I think the nurses do have a fair right on a better pay. But apart from that, there is other strikes happening. It's the most wonderful time of the year, so the song goes that's unless one of this week's strikes disrupts your Christmas plan. On Tuesday, nurses are staging another workout, patient surgeries and appointments will be cancelled. So how is this affecting medical appointments? Members of the RCN will work out again across England. Last Thursday, as I said, was their first strike and at least 19,000 patients had surgeries and appointments postponed um, uh, according to the NHS. In England, about 10,000 staff were absent. If you have a Tuesday appointment and haven't been told it is cancelled, then the, the advice is to assume it's going ahead and don't call your local hospital to check. So if you do have an appointment and it hasn't been cancelled, do not um, think that because of the strikes, maybe your appointment is automatically cancelled. You should go for it. Um, what's the harm in trying? Maybe you will get an appointment. You'll be the, one of the few lucky ones on Tuesday. The strikes will involve nurses in about a quarter of hospitals and community te- teams in England. Um, uh, what NHS services will be running? So trade union laws state that life-preserving care has to be provided. So all nursing staff are expected to work in intensive and uh, emergency care. They are not allowed to take off for the strike. Other services such as cancer care and kidney di- um, dialysis are also likely to be given some protection. Routine services will be affected, however, such as planned operations like knee and hip replacements, district nursing and mental health care. Each hospital trust has been negotiating with local RCN representatives about what care should be provided. So, uh, it's still very, very uncertain. Apart from the, the, the nurses... Um, the, the the driving tests are also being cancelled. So civil servants in the public and commercial service union, the PCS, including driving examiners, are striking on Tuesday as well. It's part of regional targeted action with uh, different areas affected at different times. Until 24th December, the workouts are in northwest England and Yorkshire and the Humber. Uh, and on Wednesday, the 21st December, across most of England and Wales, are uh, the ambulance strikes. The walkout by the three unions will affect non-life-threatening calls only, but it could see people who have had trips and falls not being responded to. Also, the Royal Mail staff is going on strike on Friday and Saturday, the 23rd and 24th December, members of the Communication Workers Union will walk out on two of the busiest days for pre-Christmas deliveries. That will be very, very chaotic. If you still have cards to post, unfortunately you have missed the last Christmas posting days for both first and second class mail. So if you are hearing this, then um, the they're recommending that you don't bother anymore. Uh, Also, the train strikes. Uh, There is ongoing disruption and some localized strikes throughout this week. And we will end well into uh, next, but a national strike of RMT members is due to start at 6 
on uh, 6 p.m. on this 24th December until 6 a.m. on 27th December. However, under normal circumstances, trains don't run on Christmas Day or Boxing Day anyway. So that was the news um, very heavily uh, uh, about the nurses going on strike. However, there are other people, other departments going on strike. So <clears throat> you should be aware, um, check up, uh, check on the internet, check the news, keep checking. Uh, maybe um, uh, if it will it will disrupt your day or maybe not. Uh, I think most most of the people um, are preparing for that Christmas or they're not going out that much. But whoever is, he should uh, prepare himself first. Um, that was it for the news, and uh, we'll take a short break and then we will move to our first segment, and we will be talking about exploring the world of silent synapses and their supposed role in the formation of memories. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Alaihissalam. Then arise and repent, and win the pleasure of God through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the day of judgment. But a person who goes beyond the limit and wrongdoing transgression, disobedience, and vice is punished in this life. Such a one cannot escape God's chastisement. So hasten to win God's pleasure, and before the dreadful day arrives, namely the day of intensity, of the plague of which the prophets have warned, make your peace with God. He is very benevolent. To the one moment of the repentance that melts the heart, he can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say that repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Alaihissalam. He is wonderfully omnipotent, and marvellous are his holy powers. While on the one hand, he allows ignorant opponents to attack his friends like dogs, on the other hand, he commands the angels to serve them. In the same way, when his wrath comes upon the world, and his anger surges against the wrongdoers, God watches over and protects his chosen ones. Were it not so, the entire mission of the people of God would end in disarray, 
and no one would be able to recognize them. His powers are infinite, but they are revealed to people in proportion to their belief. Those who are blessed with certainty and love and sever all ties for him and have broken free from selfish habits, it is for their sake that miracles are shown. God does what he wills, but he chooses to demonstrate his miraculous powers only to those who break from their ill habits for his sake. In this day and age, there are very few people who know him and believe in his extraordinary powers. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to The Breakfast Show. It's 7.38 and uh, we will be starting with our first segment for today uh, about exploring the world of silent synapses and their supposed role in the formation of memories. So the gist of the story is basically the enigmatic world of the brain is home to many mysteries remaining the remaining to be unraveled. One recent study has discovered a sheer number of silent synapses in the human brain and it is believed that the connections of these synapses may help elucidate the process of memory formation and ab- uh, absorption of the new information in this segment. We will be investigating the world of silent synapses. Um, well, the neuroscientists discovered that the adult brain contains millions of silent synapses. Millions. Until now, it was believed that silent synapses were present only during early development when they help the brain learn the new information that is exposed to earlier life. So, uh, only only in babies or very you know young young children. Um, however, the new MIT study revealed that in adult mice, about 30% of all synapses in, in the brain's cortex are silent. The existence of these silent synapses may help to explain how the adult brain is able to continually form new memories and learn new things without having to modify existing conventional synapses, the research says. Uh, these uh, silent synapses are looking for new connections and when important new information is presented connections between the le- the relevant um, the relevant neurons are strengthened this lets the brain create new memories without overwriting the important memories stored in mature synapses which are harder to change that is what uh, Doc, um, Dimitra Badalki uh, one of the MIT graduate students and the lead author of this study has said. Um, so what exactly are silent synapses? Um, they basically, uh, they are immature connections between neurons that remain inactive until they are recruited to help form new memories. So it it's basically something in your brain which is which is passive and not working until it is called for. Uh, and this is how our memory um, comes, you know, how you remember something. It's always there. However, it only comes to your mind when you need it. Um, <clears throat> so how does the brain form new memories and recollect old ones? So theoretical work in the field from Stefano Fusi and Larry Abbott of Columbia University has proposed that neurons must display a wide range of different plasticity mechanisms to explain how brains can both uh, <clears throat> can both uh, efficiently learn new things and retain them in long-term memory. 
In this scenario, some synapses must be established or modified easily to form the new memories, while others must remain much more stable to preserve long-term memories. Uh, we will be talking about this a bit more. Uh, however, before we say what we have to say, we'll go to the experts who um, obviously probably can give us a better view on this. So we will be speaking today with uh, Dr. Emma Cahill, who is a newly appointed lecturer in neuroscience at the School of uh, um, Physiology, uh, Pharmacology and Neuroscience in the University of Bristol. As a postdoctoral researcher, Emma was awarded a BBSRC Future Leaders Anniversary Fellowship to develop her research on the signaling proteins and receptors that are crucial for stages in memory processing. Emma uses a combination of studying uh, behavior, pharmacology and biochemical methods that can address questions about why a memory of an aversive event persists so strongly over time and how it may potentially be damaged by interfering with neurochemical process or using behavioral interventions. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to the breakfast show, Dr. Emma. Uh, I think we probably lost her. We'll uh, we'll try to get back to her. Uh, in the meantime, we can um, look uh, into what does this research study for the um, mean for the future, which uh, has been conducted. So uh, the researchers also hope to study whether the number or function of these synapses is affected by factors such as aging or neurodegenerative diseases. Um, I think we're, we're back with uh, Dr. Emma Cahill. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Um, Dr. Emma, how are you today? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this morning. No problem. Uh, yes, so we have some uh, f- questions for you. Um, being the expert here, we, uh, could, you brief, uh, could you briefly explain what silent synapses are and how they help in memory formation? Uh, we try to do our best, but I think hearing from you <laughs> will benefit our listeners more. Yeah, it sounded good from what I could hear. Um, so silent synapses is a term used to describe the connections in the brain that we think are immature. So by immature, I mean they're not really functional yet. We know that um, you know, a synapse is a very, very tiny connection in the brain. So we're talking about the scale of 20 nanometers. You know, a, a virus is something like four times bigger than that. And normally, these connections have a kind of a bulb that on, the, on both sides of them. And this bulb area contains receptors that can detect when a chemical like a neurotransmitter is released. So that's how the brain signals. And the silent synapses are unusual because they don't have that bulb kind of structure. Instead, they look more like a rod, which are called philopodia. And they also don't have the same types of receptors as the typical mature synapse. So... These receptors mm-hmm. are, are activated by a neurotransmitter called glutamate, for example, and silent synapses are missing a glutamate receptor called an AMPA receptor. Very interesting. Um, also, your recent research, research has looked at the role of fear and anxiety in memory. Uh, how do these emotions affect our recollection of events? So it is thought that, 
you know, memories with meaning are much more easy for us to retrieve and to recall. So if you have emotions attached to a memory, it seems to help it to be stored away or consolidated, as we say. And fear, of course, is a very strong emotion. Now, in saying that, um, there is sort of a sweet spot. If you have too much fear, then sometimes the memories are not as well encoded and you you don't have a good uh, detailed recollection of what happened. For anxiety, it's a little bit different. We, We think that anxiety is more of an emotion where the source of the the scary thing, the fearful thing is not really certain. It's not really sure. So I'm studying, Mm -hmm. trying to understand the the difference between fear and anxiety and how memories might play into it. Uh, Upon 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 experiencing traumatic events, people often block Mm -hmm. out memories. What is the science Mm -hmm. behind that, doctor? Yeah, so this, this comes actually from very old work relative to neuroscience. So Freud was one of the people to actually first talk about memories being suppressed or repressed, um, as he would have said. But in when people block out memories, what we think might be happening is that there's an active um, process to suppress these memories. And we know even in, in healthy people that haven't had trauma that you can make yourself forget information. So people like psychologists use this to study what they call suppression-induced forgetting. So if you give people a list of words and you tell them that certain pairs of words they should try and forget and certain ones they should remember, they actually do forget more of the ones they're instructed to. So there is an active process of forgetting as well as a process of forming memories. Um, But I think it's fair to say there's a lot more research into how we form the memory rather than how we block them out or we forget them. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and uh, one more last question. Um, students are always finding new ways to improve their studying. Are there any methods that are scientifically backed or have been proven to improve memory? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, someone who lectures, a lot of my students are interested in this sort of question too. I think, you know, even if we understand a lot now about the neurochemistry of memory, the best methods that have been described by science are the most intuitive methods. So sleep is really important for storing of memories. So we know getting good quality sleep will enhance people's ability to store away for the long term those memories. Um, exercise helps to generate, um, you know, not just healthy metabolism in the brain, but there's some evidence that it helps to generate new neurons in certain areas that are important for memory. Um, And finally, if you have uh, studying, for example, um, a new topic or a subject, we know what moves things from our short-term memory to long-term memory is the ability to repeat it and elaborate, so to make connections between the various things that you're learning. So much like you're doing now in an interview, if you ask questions about a process and you continue to ask questions, you can make links and it makes it easier to make the memory connect up and make the information connect up and um, more easy to retrieve then. Thank you very much. This is very, very interesting. Um, I also have another question that um, sometimes you you feel you remember something like a deja vu. Um, How Mm. comes that is, uh, how how does that form in the brain? Yeah, that's really fascinating. 
I think we don't know how it formed. Some of the theories are that it's it's a lapse in our sense of time, that the, our processing of the brain recognizing the present. Um, the the other thing that's quite interesting about it is it's difficult to study because it tends to happen spontaneously. So when you're trying to study spontaneous things in a laboratory situation, it's not necessarily easy. So some yeah. people try and, um, you know, yeah, increase the amount of, of deja vu people experience by putting mm. them in different situations. Um, but yeah, I think it's the current thinking is it's our sense of time has momentarily sort of lapsed. So you have a feeling that what you're seeing is in the, is in the past or has already happened. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Emma. That was very interesting. Um, very good uh, speaking to you. Um, uh, I think that's it from our side. Um, and thank you for joining us. Um, oh, thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, thank you for being with us. And I hope you have a wonderful day ahead. You too. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was uh, Dr. Emma Cahill who is a newly appointed lecturer in neuroscience at the School of Physiology, Pharmacology and Neuroscience in the University of Bristol. As a postdoctoral researcher, Emma was awarded a BBSRC Future Leaders Anniversary Fellowship to develop her research on the signaling proteins and receptors that are crucial for stages in memory processing. Emma also used a combination of studying behavior, uh, pharmacology and biochemical methods that can address questions by uh, questions about why a memory of an aversive event persists so strongly over time and how it may potentially be damped by interfering with neurochemical process or using behavioral interventions so as uh, um, our listeners probably heard there's obviously some scientific scientifically proven methods to uh, improve your memory and uh, i hope everyone can uh, benefit from this um also with uh, I have a I have a um another friend with me here um Imam Farid who can um uh, I would like to uh, ask you about um what does uh, Islam uh, have to say regarding this could you enlighten us a little bit well, it says in <coughs> it says in the holy quran surah at-taha chapter 20 verse 115 it states that Exalted then is Allah, the true King, and be not impatient for Quran, for Quran er, er its revelation it is completed upon you. But only say, O my Lord, increase me in my knowledge. And in chapter 39, verse 10 of the Holy Quran, Allah, <coughs> Allah the Almighty states, Say, are those who know equal to those who know not. This verse clearly highlights the elevated status of the education and those who gain knowledge in the eyes of Allah, the Almighty. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is recorded to have said that wisdom, the word of wisdom, is the lost property of a Muslim so that whenever he finds it, he should take it as he is most entitled to it. Tirmizi. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So obviously, seeking knowledge is uh, kind of a a commandment in Islam. Yeah, you can it? say that. Obviously, yeah. if someone hasn't got access to knowledge and he just works and f feeds his family, that's up to him. But mm. you at least need to 
try it sometimes in your life to attain knowledge yeah. obviously yeah mm-hmm. knowledge can be everything isn't it and knowledge doesn't have to be a uh, religious knowledge um as as mentioned by the holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him that acquiring knowledge it's not specified what what kind of knowledge so um it can be assumed that it's 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 it, it is actually meant for every kind of knowledge because uh, any anything you learn in your life will benefit you somewhere in your life at some point right yeah the holy prophet uh, may peacing peace and blessing of allah be upon him once said that uh, regarding their you can say the knowledge of the world he said to one of his companions or group of companions that as far as the world knowledge is concerned you guys are more aware about that than i am so in a way he was saying that even if i tell you something which you think that according to the world the rules of the world or you can say the current situation is not mm-hmm. very appropriate then it's not a commandment it's just a suggestion yes as far as religion is concerned i know more than you but as far as the worldly aspect is concerned you might know better than me so he was just trying to say that knowledge is not just you can say limited to one person mm-hmm. and you need to learn knowledge from wherever you can that's the idea yeah amazing um i also remember another narration of the holy prophet peace be upon him um he said that seek knowledge though it may be found in a country as far as china so imagine in those days you are in saudi arabia in the middle of a desert and traveling at that time um you know it used to be an on camels right camels yeah. or yeah so what else? We, from the islamic history we deduce the fact that uh, it took days for people to travel around the arabian peninsula and mm-hmm. you can say syria morocco and all these countries so it took days not I won't say months but it took days so imagine going to china where you need to grab a ship as well back in that back in the days so it might have just took months just to get to that china and then spending mm-hmm. your money and then learning knowledge you put all, all that in perspective for so it is very important so for now nowadays we could say oh yeah go to china and learn it but back in the days he was just trying to say it's just an expression where he says that even if you have to travel that far and spend that much amount of money go there and seek knowledge this is what the importance mm-hmm. of this hadith says basically yes even today i think like if i had to go to china to learn something it <coughs> um maybe the transport has gone easier because you have a you have a plane yeah. you can fly on but that plane ticket alone will cost you hundreds of yeah, pounds yeah as far as the yeah, spending is concerned it i don't think it's uh, different any different it's yeah. the same you had to spend a lot back then you had to spend a lot now as well yeah and also um financially as well but emotionally <coughs> you might have to stay separate from your parents if you're a yeah. young student you have to it's, it's a different country a different culture um it, it's obviously takes a toll on your brain uh, but what what about um women in uh, cuz many people have this um i'd say uh, objection or misunderstanding that uh, islam prevents women from thriving they will keep them in the house what what does the holy prophet well there is say? another in, in, you can say narration of the holy prophet uh, may peace and blessings of allah be upon him that uh, regarding hazrat aisha they said that half of the knowledge of the islam is with hazrat aisha and go to her and you can say learn knowledge so and we as we know that 
حضرت عائشہ نریٹڈ سیکنڈ موسٹ احادیث نمبر آف احادیث So first mm-hmm. up is Hatu Buraira, second is Hatasha. So she was, she wasn't just, you can say, restricted to her house and the four walls of the house. The people would come to her and she would, you can say, narrate these all ahadiths around over 2,000 of them. So we can simply say that you can go up to anyone to learn knowledge, a man or a woman. And she did that. She educated hundreds of people back then. So it's not that women do not, you can say, play a part in imparting knowledge mm-hmm. <coughs> very true um i think uh we, we uh will uh, take a short break soon after the news uh we will come back to this topic and we will uh, we'll have a another um expert with us um who we sp- have spoken to before professor david dockrow uh um we will be listening to him after the news um but before we go to the news um there was another another point about this research um <clears throat> that uh, and the research states that it's entirely possible that by changing the amount of flexibility you've got in a memory system it could become much harder to change your behaviors and habits uh, or incorporate new information um so uh harnett says you could also imagine finding some of the molecular players that are involved in philopodia and trying to manipulate some of those things to try to restore flexible memory as we age. So obviously, seeking knowledge has to do a lot with memory because if you don't remember it, then um, it won't uh, it won't be much of a knowledge, would it be? So uh, that's why seeking knowledge and preserving it um, go hand in hand. You have to learn and you have to remember Uh, we'll be speaking more about this after the 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Auzubillahi minashaitanirrajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Welcome back to the breakfast show. Uh, we just heard the news and some interesting clips. Um, now, um, just uh, regarding the last topic, there was uh, one another small clip um we want you to listen to and after that we are going to move on to our next segment and we'll be talking about the infamous strep a bacterial infection so uh, have a listen to that and uh, we'll be back after this shortly this question is what is your interpretation of spiritual states and the cosmological that's in inverted commas god in relation to the synchronization of brain frequencies synchronization synchronization of what brain frequencies brain frequencies yes. you see everything is ultimately a, a wave or a frequency nothing more there is no matter which cannot be described in terms of these frequencies and uh, spiritual terms because matter when it is broken up it turns into waves and energy and uh, energy is just uh, a form of existence which cannot be touched cannot be defined even by the best scholars they have tried to give definition of energy but ultimately they know this this is an area where they can they must fail because what is energy after all according to religious concepts energy is the will of god and it emanates from the will of god which is emanated in frequencies and wavelengths 
and creates all the difference in the world. So that was the clip of um, clip of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on him. The fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association. <clears throat> he also was a very very large fountain of knowledge uh, who lived up to this um, saying of the Holy Prophet that seek knowledge um, even if you have to go as far as China. Uh, very very great inspiration for us as well. That brings us to the end to our first seg- of our first segment about the uh, uh, silent synapses and what's happening around in our brain. Now we will start our second segment um, regarding the strep A bacterial infection. And uh, why are there so many cases on the rise? So recently, many cases of strep A bacterial infections are coming to light, with some cases leading to the death of school pupils. In uh, this segment, we will endeavor to understand what strep A bacterial infections are and some of the signs and symptoms to look out for. Um, In this season, as the cold weather is rising, the amounts of strep A bacteria are also rising. Uh, it's very common. Um, it's a very common, famous link. I think that you know, as as it gets colder, these uh, bacteria and illnesses seem to um, get more severe and very uh, uh, common. Um, many studies have shown that due to the lockdown during the COVID nineteen pandemic, the resistance of strep A decreased. Um, therefore, the individuals are not really resistant to this bacteria, hence it is dividing um, and uh, increasing. Uh, this strep A bacteria is also known as the scarlet fever. Uh, maybe some some of you know this as scarlet fever. You get red uh, spots or rashes on your face or body, very common in children uh, compared to adults, but. Uh, most people in the UK have it, um, the strep A bacteria. Most people uh, in the UK have it without them knowing, but they can spread it to others. So it's a little bit like COVID, just uh, probably not as dangerous. However, it has it has uh, caused the death of um, 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 some students. Um, I don't know what the number is at this point. Uh, anyways, the most common symptoms of the strep A bacteria include a mild sore throat or a type of skin infection. So if you see, uh, especially in children, uh, if you have children at home or um, uh, if you see um, they ha- they have some kind of infection on the skin and the color of the skin is changing without any reason or they're having um, a mild sore throat, then uh, you should definitely contact um, and the uh, NHS or call nine 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 or um, we'll we'll get more um, into this. We'll we'll ask the experts what do they advise us. But uh, this may also lead to a condition called scarlet fever. So there is this can lead to um, another fever. But uh, before we speak about these things, we will speak. Uh, we have spoken. Sorry, uh, we have spoken to uh, Professor David um, Dockrell. Um, who is a professor of infection medicine at the University of Edinburgh. He is uh, an infectious disease consultant at uh, NHS Lothian, as well as a director of the Centre for Inflammation Research University of Edinburgh. So uh, let's listen to the interview with Professor David Dockrell. 
Salikom, peace be upon you. Welcome to the breakfast show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Yeah, so the first question we have for you, getting uh, straight into it, is uh, what is Strep A and how does one contact uh, contract it? So Strep A is a kind of bacterium. Uh, it's uh, stands for what's called group A streptococci or sometimes called mm-hmm. streptococcus pyogenes and it's basically a bacteria that only causes infection in humans so the way that we get it is by being exposed to somebody who carries this bacteria uh, either in their airway or their skin or some other source and that exposes us to the bacteria. And uh, how does this uh, differentiate from uh, something like a flu, for example? So the symptoms of streptococcus A, group A streptococcus infection uh, vary depending on whether it's a localized infection, such as somebody might have if they have it in their throat uh, or if they have it on their skin, causing infection in their skin, versus if they have what we call invasive infection where the bacteria spread in the blood and they get what we call blood poisoning and sometimes also the bacteria can produce toxins that can produce other manifestations like skin rashes and people may have heard of so-called scarlet fever which is an example of something that happens with group A streptococci. So the symptoms can be like lots of other infections. With respect to flu, for example, uh, the early stages of group A streptococcal infection can include fever, can include aches and pains, particularly in the muscles. And they they will seem to be similar to influenza. But for each disease, there can be clues. If there's a prominent sore throat, clues can be if there is pus at the back of the throat and the tonsils or if there are swollen glands in the neck particularly if they are tender and these can be things that can be used by healthcare workers to identify whether an infection is caused by group A streptococci as opposed to influenza A or other um, viral or bacterial infections in the throat. Mm, Interesting. And uh, what is the reason for a strep A more common rather than adults? So severe group A streptococcal infections can occur at any age. And in fact, they can be more serious also in, in the elderly. But mm-hmm. it is true that we are seeing a lot of infections in children. And um, children are probably more susceptible for a number of reasons. The first is they are the age group where we see a lot of viral infections and bacteria like group A streptococci are often associated with a previous viral infection. So when we're seeing a lot of influenza or we're seeing a lot of respiratory viruses and we see these, you know, particularly in children, that can increase the chance of group A streptococcal infection. The other thing is that um, children's immune system is a little bit less developed uh, and it may be that they haven't acquired full protective immunity to some of these infections or that their response, their body's response to these infections may involve more inflammation and more severe disease. So these are the reasons that we think the children may be particularly susceptible to severe forms of the infection. Mm-hmm. And uh, it does that also apply to uh, 
the elderly whose immune system is also slightly weaker? Yes, um, for different reasons. There it may be that their immune system that was working well when they were younger may be starting to wane and not work quite as effectively as it did when they were younger, as opposed to maybe the smaller children where it might be they haven't developed that um, protective immunity yet. Right. Um, Yeah, so the next one is what is... uh causing such a rapid increase in strep A? So we think that immunity um, uh, may have waned um, a little or that children particularly may not have had all of the exposures that they might have during normal periods of mixing when they were going to school, etc. during the COVID pandemic. So one reason is that, um, you know, because children are now being, and adults as well, are now being exposed more to other people, that they may be seeing more infections without having had a chance to build up protective immunity over the last couple of years when there were the COVID restrictions. The other Mm -hmm. reason is it's not just um, group A streptococci that we're seeing causing more infections at present. It's also some of the viruses that I told you about that are often associated with some of these infections and you know we're also seeing as you are probably uh, listeners are probably aware we're seeing a lot of influenza a at present we're seeing a lot of other respiratory viral infections uh, and these very infections that are causing such pressure on the nhs they're the same things that will predispose to seeing a lot of group a streptococcal infections yes definitely um, also, uh, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but there's at-home strep tests, um, and uh, can they be used, uh, and how effective are they? Yeah, so this is an interesting question, and obviously a lot of people will be familiar with using home tests for things like COVID, SARS-CoV-2, uh, viral yeah. infections, and the principles of this sort of test are similar. They're basically identifying a antigen, that's a protein that's produced by the um, bacteria, and they are identifying it by an antibody, uh, you know, which the test uses to identify the antigen, usually using a throat swab and that the patient takes or the person takes maybe on their child. And the test, um, you know, can detect uh, group A streptococci, but there are a number of limitations. The first is that although a positive test is, you know, suggestive that somebody has been exposed and carries the group A streptococci, um, the problem is the test isn't always very sensitive. That many people, maybe up to a third of people who have the bacteria, the test may be negative. So the first thing is the test could miss people who have the infection. The second thing, of course, is that lots of people who have the bacteria at the back of their throat, for example, may just be carrying it without having any symptoms of disease, and they may be perfectly healthy. And a positive test doesn't mean that people have severe disease. So For these reasons, the people who have been advising us in the UK about tests and the appropriateness of tests, such as the body called NICE, um, Mm -hmm. these bodies have been recommending that we largely 
base our recommendations on clinical examinations where needed and on the more sensitive tests like cultures which are done in hospitals or by GPs, you know, sending samples into laboratories. So the tests aren't aren't advised as a test to replace the basic principles of if somebody is unwell, contacting the healthcare services and through NHS Direct or directly through their GPs or other routes into the NHS. And the importance of when people are ill being clinically examined for signs of the disease uh, and then the appropriate tests that can follow after that. So that's still recommended as the best way of dealing with a potential case of severe group A streptococcal infection. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I don't know if this is um, in your department as well, but uh, how can the, uh, how can people access these tests? Where can you order them on, on the website of the NHS website? Or? So as I say, they are not recommended. They are not recommended for routine use by the NHS and therefore mm -hmm. they're not available in the way that, for example, the SARS-CoV-2 tests were uh, available. So, um, yeah, you know, the, the principles are that people should contact, you know, the NHS through the usual routes when they have concerns and particularly people should be vigilant for signs of a severe disease, which obviously suggests the urgency of seeking appropriate health care. Right. Yeah. So stay away from the tests. <laughs> Not very useful. Um, lastly, uh, the, the biggest question I, from like, all, of, out of all of these, what can we do to prevent the strep A from spreading? Yeah. So that's a very good question. I mean, the principles are many of the things that your listeners will have heard about SARS-CoV-2 and other infections. So good hand hygiene, good, you know, cough etiquette when people are coughing, you know, to cover um, to cover their mouths when they're coughing, um, not, um, you know, making sure that if they have a, a handkerchief, a paper handkerchief or whatever, that they dispose of it appropriately. So all of the usual basic advice about, hand, uh, about hygiene, then it's important that people who have got um, infection seek health care advice and get appropriately treated because appropriate treatment will you know remove their infection and stop them being at risk of transmitting the infection on to others and uh, you know the obviously more long term it's not something that we have available but the long term goal is to have a vaccine for group A streptococcal infection we have vaccines for many other diseases and you know something uh, you know that we can do as well as making sure that everybody uh, you know has had the appropriate vaccines to some of the viral infections that might play a role in increasing you know streptococcal infection in the community so making sure people have had their flu vaccines if indicated people have had their SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and you know hopefully someday we might have a more specific vaccine for group A streptococci as well. Great thank you very much uh, it was lovely speaking with you uh, Professor David and uh, thank you for your time this is a very very uh, interesting things you've told us and I hope the listeners will uh, benefit from this and thank you very much. Thank you very much um, for talking to me. Well, that was um, Professor David Dokro, um, 
who is a professor of infection and medicine, University of Edinburgh. He is an uh, infectious disease consultant at NHS Lothian, as well as the director of the Centre of Inflammation Research, University of Edinburgh. So uh, he has given us a, a lot of information here. Um, uh, a very important one um, is that uh, when you see uh, the symptoms of strep A, definitely contact your doctor. Um, uh, and you also mentioned about the home testing kits. Uh, contrary to the COVID testing kits, which have been improved uh, quite a lot because of the research done, uh, the strep A home testing kits are not re- that reliable. So uh, don't try to um, use those, um, or even if you use them, they won't give you clear results. So it's always best to uh, go and uh, you know speak to your doctor. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I would also like to uh, mention that um, ultimately, uh, the ultimately the cure uh, is in no one's hands. If you do contract the disease, and there's no one who can save you in this world with guarantee, because the ultimate healer is obviously the one who has created us. Um, who knows a watch better than the watchmaker? Who knows more about a video game than the one who has designed it? So in the same way, who can cure us better than the creator who has created us? And we should always um, ask our creator for help if we are in need as he is the most knowing about our own um, body and our mind. Uh, The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, he is reported to have said that there is no disease that Allah the Almighty has created, except that he has also created its treatment. So there is there is no such thing in the world which is uncurable. However, it, we have to find the we have to find the cure that is which is um, the real uh, task for us. So we will take a little break here, and uh, after that we will shortly begin with our third segment and uh, speak about. Our well-being, um, the top tips to increase positive self-talk. Also, if you uh, want to call us, talk to us, you can call us on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Or if you don't want to talk with us, then uh, tweet us at least at Voice of Islam UK. Um, watch whichever you prefer, but uh, please try to um, get involved. We would love to have you here, and uh, we'll see you after a short break. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, Sin, which indeed is a poison, is born when a man is wanting in obedience to God and is empty of his love and his affectionate remembrance. The fate of a man whose heart has become cold to the love of God is like that of an uprooted tree, no longer capable of drawing the sap of life from the soil. As such, a tree gradually withers and dies. So like the dryness of the tree, sin overwhelms the heart. The remedy for this state of dryness, according to the law of nature, is of three types. Number one, love. Number two, istighfar, that is, seeking forgiveness of Allah. It literally means a desire to bury or to cover, reminding one, that as long as the root of the tree is buried in the soil, it can hope to bring forth green foliage. 
Number three. The third remedy is Toba, which means to turn towards God in all humility, drawing the sap of life and to bring oneself closer to Him, to break loose with the help of righteous deeds from the enveloping cover of sinfulness. Toba cannot be achieved merely by word of mouth. In fact, Toba can be perfected only with the help of righteous deeds. All acts of goodness are aimed at achieving perfection of Toba. Welcome back to the breakfast show. Um, we were going to move on to our third segment, but before that, we have another short clip talking about people, uh, why people may suffer, suffer despite having a good um, um, righteousness. And he asks the question about uh, human suffering, uh, and particularly why do why do good people always, uh, not always suffer, but why is it that the, those who do good deeds uh, also are subjected to suffering, uh, Dr. Zayed? Well, in my life I found the philosophy that there is no gain without pain. And I have found this to be so true in all aspects of, of my life. I'm speaking from a personal point. Um, whether it be sporting achievements or educational achievements or whatever it is, you have to put yourself to test. You have to put yourself through trials. You have to put yourself through tribulations. You have to work hard. You have to sweat. And only then will you gain something. And I think this is the philosophy behind suffering as well. And suffering is, is such a subjective subject anyway. What one person considers to be suffering may not be suffering for, for another person in any, in any case. But this is, this is what it is. The life that we live here is only a temporary life. And it is the life hereafter, which is the eternal life. And that is what we are, that is the goal for our life in this respect. So our, our suffering or perceived suffering in this world will actually be rewarded by God Almighty. Um, even the pricking of a thorn, you know, the suffering that you get for that, Allah will actually reward you, bless you, forgive you, your sins and so on. So the suffering aspect of our life actually is beneficial for us. We may not think so at the moment we are going through that suffering, but that is, that is the philosophy behind it, and that is the reward and the blessing that we look forward to, that Allah will actually transform that into our gain. And that is, of course, what we hope to achieve. That was a short clip. Um, uh, speaking about, uh, despite being a good person, why is the suffering? And very, very well said by um, the doctor that there is no pain without uh, there's no gain without any pain. Uh, this brings us to the end of our second segment and we will move on to our last segment um, and we will try to end on a positive note here. Looking after your well-being, top tips to increase positive self-talk. In the hustling and bustling world of today, there are many instances where we may feel overwhelmed. In these moments, look towards the power of positive self-talk a very very strong and very powerful tool and consider how our inner thoughts can have a major impact on our mental well-being mental well-being has been discussed so much in this uh, in these past few years and it has a massive massive positive impact on many people um so in this segment we will be exploring some top tips to help increase positive talk um, inner dialogue can be either devastating or uplifting, depending on how you f uh, focus your words. 
you can change your inner dialogue to improve your well-being by focusing on and changing the stories you tell yourself. When you find yourself caught in negative self-talk, use simple breathing exercises to disrupt uh, thought patterns and improve mood. Uh, so decades of research have established the positive impact of various types of breathing on overall mental health. Um, many people are familiar with yoga. It's, it's uh, not much movement. You see people doing different stretches, but they're, they're not doing uh, very intense work, or at least so it seems. But the breathing, the controlling the breathing, controlling your body, your posture uh, itself that 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 uh, action takes so much energy and so much focus that you will see people drenched with sweat e- even after a, a yoga session so it is uh, remarkable how much uh, a breathing exercise can change your mental well-being and your physical state as well um but before we talk uh, more about this we will go uh, to our um guest uh, dr mike justico um, he's a lecturer at the University of Leeds. Uh, his research focus is men's health and well-being. So this is a very surprising thing. So he's 55 years old and has been a lecturer for less than two years. He has spent most of his life in manual jobs and poverty in Leeds, including 15 years as a postman, but needed a change. So he completed a degree in 2010 and... Uh, and a PhD in psychology in 2020. They were both uh, part-time study while working. Um, Aslam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to the breakfast show, Dr. Mike. Morning, how are you? I am great, how are you? Um, I'm, I'm good this morning, thank you, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, I just gave a brief intro and I am seriously uh, so shocked that uh, you have uh, you know got a phd uh, um and you've just been teaching for 2 years 55 years yeah. old these are some surprising things to me <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i just i i didn't do very much with my life early on and suddenly decided that i wanted to have a much more interesting life so made it happen and um i did my phd at the university of leeds and when i finished they asked me if i'd like to start teaching with them and i thought quite yes this is exactly what i've always wanted to do so well you know through the process of learning <laughs> yeah um, talk about positive thinking yeah absolutely yeah that's that's a i think you're a great inspiration here uh for also for many of our listeners um but uh, your main research focuses on men's health and well-being so what do you think is the current notion of men when it comes to accessing health care and such services uh, help seeking is is an issue for men um boys are socialized to be strong and self-sufficient and learn not to ask for help and i think that carries them through to adulthood whereas women are much more socialized just to talk to each other and men aren't socialized to do that Um, and then when things go wrong it could be seen as a sign of weakness in a man to ask for help and they carry their problems with them until they get so bad that things are badly you know things go badly wrong for Mm -hmm. them um, I mean, some of the research I was reading during my PhD said that um, GP surgeries are not welcoming places for men either. Um, mostly they're staffed by women, and it's mostly women that take their children to have their checkups, and if children are ill, the men are kind of 
got isolated from that process. So if they want to go and ask for help, they're going into this alien environment, which isn't comfortable for them, whereas it's much more comfortable for them to do those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of um, things going on around at the moment with things like Andy's Man Club. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this. This is a guy, a rugby league player who took his own life and his brother said, no, this is not going to happen to anybody else. I want to stop this happening. And he's created this group where men just go and talk and there's no pressure on the men to talk and lots, lots of men are finding it really, really good for them just to go and talk with other men, open up and ask for help. And it's mm. sort of a, it's a start of this process, I think, of people, of men starting to say, yeah, actually, it's okay for us to talk to each yeah definitely i think it is one of the hardest things for men to you know have that um you feel like it's against your masculinity to ask for help uh even though you probably need it the most but yeah, uh, you have to, yeah you have to be vulnerable have to be vulnerable you have to open up to others and that's not a comfortable place for a lot of men yeah very true uh also your research has further shown that men in poverty have a much higher level of resilience to conquering challenges how does uh, that correlate and uh, um, how does such an outlook contribute to the um, creation of positive health and well-being? I think because, um, I mean, I, I, I was this man in poverty as well, so I, I, and, and also the guys I spoke to were all um, on, on uh, earning so little that they could apply for benefits. Mm-hmm. And I think that they, um, they had less choices because, you know, catching a bus is outside their budget. So they find um, they're more creative and do simple things rather than the expensive, complicated things. And if you've got money, if you've got money, you'll do things yeah. differently. And it's simple. Oh, I've got this cash. I'll go and spend it. Whereas if you don't have cash, you don't have that ability. So you, you are much more creative to, to make things happen for you. Because we, we all, everybody's has this drive to be happy and, co- and confident and, and comfortable in life. And, you know, it may be just having a cup of tea with your friends. For example, there was um, one of the people I interviewed um, had problems with his knees. He couldn't own a dog uh, because if the dog pulled him over, he wouldn't be able to stand up again. So he invited friends over to his house. They sat outside while the dog, their dogs, friends' dogs ran around his garden. So he got friendship and he got company of dogs as well. So it, it those, and that cost him nothing. Hmm. So it's, these, it's these simple things that you can do, creatively simple things that, that, um, that I think come from a place where um, you, you don't have very much, so you, you are much more creative and um, to, to create your own health and well-being. But th- there is surely a, a, a I think, a, a limit, uh, a minimum, because uh, if you see people in extreme poverty, they seem to, uh, does that apply to them as well? Or does that mean you have less money? But what about people who have, let's say, no money? Um, are they more resilient to challenges? I, I, I don't know. I will be honest with you with that question. I don't know. Uh, it, it's a lot about the person as well, I think. I think a lot of it comes from within. Some people have that mm. strength. Some people reach out to others. Um, one of the guys I've interviewed did have nothing. Um, and he, he recently lost his wife, so he was really he was struggling with quite a lot of things going on in his life. But he had lots of friends who came and visited him. And I think it's that, that, that gr- social group, even when you have nothing, you can sit and talk. You can sit and spend time with each other, and that <clears throat> that creates a, a sense of positivity within you. That there are other people around you in a similar plight who 
who also want to talk and want to you know want to boost each other through through the, the company yeah definitely a very difficult challenge mm. what would you suggest to people uh, who may be suffering from various challenges to be encouraged to start this journey towards positive health um, because there's, there is always something there is always a positive to go for um, I know it sounds really hard when you you don't have very much but life you think about when how your life was when it was positive or has been positive it can be positive again mm. um, but I think people should do simple things within their capabilities the the, the thing that I, I discovered um, was the five steps to well-being that the NHS promote um, and I, I read the research behind that and that was that was sort of 20 something years ago that this research was done and it was massively extensive research that isn't talked about by the NHS but these are the things the research informs the five things um, and three of them are really um, one of them was connecting with other people the other one is to learn new skills and another one is give to others and all these things mean you connect to other people and I think it's other people that give us positivity so mm -hmm. if you are feeling down and you want a place to start then start by connecting to somebody else so that's the first um, step you have to you have to I go out and so. speak. Yeah, just or just be with somebody else. You don't have to speak with them. You just have to be with somebody else. I think that, mm -hmm. that the fact that you the, the realization there are because I think when you um, when you get to a low place, you kind of shut yourself off, and you, there is you just sort of close your close yourself into um, to your own thoughts, and, and that can be quite destructive if if the thoughts aren't good thoughts. So by opening up to other people, just to be around other people and see, oh, there are other people, and it just lifts your spirits just to be around them. Um, and then you can do, then you can start to reach out to them and do other things with them. Um, another one of the five steps is called pay attention to the present. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you you focus on what's going on for you in the world. You look outside yourself. Um, so you're not dealing with difficult thoughts because the difficult thoughts aren't in your head because you're focusing on something else. Um, so there's, there's lots and lots of things there. I mean, I could, I could go through them all, and, and but they're mm -hmm. up there. They're on. They're online, and they're they're, they're available anywhere. So I, I think these are really positive things just to start the process off. Definitely. Also, could you set, shed some light on your PhD project you uh, have undertaken as part of a project resilience? I don't know how, how if I'm pronouncing it properly, but go Sisyphus. Sisyphus, yeah. Yeah. Um, could you tell us something about that, please? Yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, the PhD took me eight years. When I say that to people, they want eight years. Well, yes, it did take me eight years. Um, and, and it kind of, I've got this, this, this note, as I was um, trying to understand how, um, how men create health and well-being in the position of men in poverty, I got this idea of Sisyphus. And Sisyphus was a, the king of Corinth who cheated death. This is what the legend says. And so um, the gods made him roll a rock to the top of the hill every day. And at the end of the day, he let it roll back down the hill and he had to spend the next day pushing the rock back to the top of the hill for eternity. This is his punishment. Mm. And I have this, this, I saw this image of, a, of a, an, uh, a man holding a rock, trying to push the rock on the hill. And I thought this is pretty much what it's like for someone in poverty to maintain their health and well-being. Because... If you do nothing for your health and well-being, the rock will start to roll down the hill. You will get worse. If you do nothing for your your sense of um, sense of self and your sense of well-being, you do, it, it deteriorates. So you actually have to positively, physically do something to help 
create this well-being. And it was like, you have to put effort to hold the rock in place on the hill. So just to maintain your well-being, you have to put effort in. To improve it, you have to put a lot more effort in to push the rock up the hill to a better place, a better, higher level of, of well-being. This is the idea behind that. That came from my research when I was having, I interviewed 21 men. Um, uh, I didn't ask them any questions. The, the yeah. idea was that I they gave them a camera and they photographed things that affected their health and well-being. And in the interview, they just told me about those things. I didn't have any pre-planned questions, so it was com- completely exploratory and I, the men gave me what they wanted. It wasn't a, I'm going to ask you these questions. They, they, they came with all these things to talk to me about. And they were amazing. Each interview averaged more than an hour wow. with all this stuff they wanted to tell me. I, th- I think there's this idea that they wanted to be listened to for the first time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because nobody really wants to know what they have to say because poverty, you know, people in poverty, the government and other people don't, don't really care. It was, a, it was this release for them to talk about. Um and then my supervisor, my PhD, the Project Resilience is her website, and she asked me if I wanted to put something in there around my um, my PhD information, and, and we together we created that that piece on on the internet. That's amazing. Um, lastly, I, I would like to ask you about um, how can we raise awareness of these issues. Uh, I, I raise awareness for to who. Is it for, uh, for example, uh, men's mental health and uh, positive behaviours? Uh, what, what steps can uh, other people take um, individually um, I, to to raise awareness? Uh, I think um, you, you've, you've um, asked me to come on here, and this, this, I think this is one thing. I think more more people talking about it and more people talking about men's health. Um, it's becoming more. It's it's becoming more. Um, Uh, commonplace for Mm -hmm. people to talk about mental health now which is really really important and I think more people should join the conversation I think that's a really cheesy thing to say but I think if if you had someone like Gareth Southgate or some major figure that men would look up to or or think is a hero to come out and start talking about these things more I know um, Prince William is doing this as well he's been very much on this as well but the more people who talk about it and the more people want to talk about it and the more men who connect I think that's the way to do it. I don't think we can have this big thing because I think it's one of those things that changes slowly over time. Um, but just to not stop talking about it, just to keep keep it going, keep it going, keep talking about it. And, and times like this, this is this is really helpful, I think, as well for other people to hear um, the things I found. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody who they want to contact me as well, and if they want um, support or help with any of these things. That's uh, really amazing. Um, thank you Dr. Mike uh, this is uh, all we have today for you uh, I'm really grateful for you to um, join us this morning and raise awareness about this important issue which is not emphasized on the pond and uh, thank you yeah that's that's all from us thank you very much brilliant thank you for inviting me today thank you very much have a nice day bye bye cheers bye that was uh, Professor um, Dr. Mike Jessico who is a lecturer at the University of Leeds And as I mentioned, he is 55 years old and has been a lecturer for less than two years as he has spent most of his life in manual jobs and poverty in Leeds, including 15 years as a postman, but he needed a change. Um, Also, he completed uh, his degree in 2010 and 
Uh, he completed his PhD in psychology in 2020, which is remarkable because they were both uh, part-time studies as he was working. Uh, mental health and uh, well-being is a very, very important topic. Uh, there's so much we can talk about, but uh, if we go to the Holy Quran, the guidance, the ultimate guidance, we see that it mentions that surely in the remembrance of Allah, hearts can find comfort. This is uh, something really beautiful um, for those who have tried this method uh, to remember God, to remember Allah. I think they have surely found comfort in their hearts. Um, and uh, who can tell us more about this than uh, Imam Ibrahim Noonan? We will be speaking to him about uh, this, uh, about the Islamic perspective of mental health as well. Uh, Imam Ibrahim Noonan is a missionary in charge in Ireland um, and Northern Ireland. He is uh, a graduate of both Christian and Islamic theology and philosophy. Uh, he studied intercultural theology and interreligious studies at the Trinity College in Dublin. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you. How are you today, Ibrahim? Uh, Imam Ibrahim? Walaikum uh, Salaam, I'm fine, thank you. And I hope you are all okay as well. Yes, Alhamdulillah, by the grace of God, we are doing great. Um, so we have some questions about mental health and uh, uh, specifically about Islam. Um, how can people find that inner peace and tranquility which so many are seeking? I think you've just you've just touched upon it now. It's it is something that um, perhaps uh, many people in the world and, and and certainly many people within Islam itself um, don't equate with Islam um, regarding mental health. And uh, because when you say tranquility and peace of mind and peace of heart, these are all elements of of human emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and amazingly, as you as you rightly uh, pointed out, um, you know the Quran gives the answers to all these things. And in fact, this is one of the things that I have found over the years being a convert into Islam. Uh, now, Alhamdulillah, um, you know, thirty odd years or more now, by the grace of Allah. Um, uh, one 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 verse that comes to my mind right now is that you know when Allah says in the Quran Alif Lam Mim when we look at the word Alif Lam Mim it's normally translated as I'm already unknowing that is indeed the translation but when you go deeper into it there's it, it goes far and beyond than just I'm already unknowing so that means for me at least Allah is telling us that He knows everything He's aware of everything He's He's mm-hmm. he's conscious of his creation. He knows the the minds, the hearts, the difficulties of his creation, and and the fact that he has said that the Quran is a perfect book and is a book for the righteous. It means that that whatever it gives, whatever the, whatever the teachings give, it is it is perfect. And um, in the same um, verses uh, towards the end, uh, actually, of this particular um, verses I'm referring to. Yeah. Uh, where it says, mm-hmm. The Muflihum is the one that we have to uh, really focus on. Um, that, um, you know, such people who, 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 who rely on Almighty Allah, who, who submit to the will of Almighty Allah, they are the ones who will become, who shall prosper. And that is the area people should hold on to. 
that if they believe in Allah, they act upon His His guidance, His teachings, um, there they will they will prosper, and that includes um, the struggle of uh, finding inner peace and, and tranquility. Definitely. Um, in times of hardship, how how do the teachings of Islam help us stay optimistic? What does Islam offer us? Well, uh, again, um, it comes down to. Um, for me at least, and my, my, ref- my reflection upon this and meditation upon this over years, and I think every human being goes through at some point in their life, maybe not, not once, not once, many times in their life and throughout their life indeed, mm-hmm. they, will, they, will, uh, they will go through hardships. Um, they, they won't always have that moment of always perfectness. And therefore, again, um, you know, Almighty Allah has, has again, and I want to share this these verses for our listeners as well. Where, where Almighty Allah says, "Well, asr inul insan alafi qusr ila lazina amanu wa mulsalihati wa tawas wal haki wa tawas sabr." So here, Almighty Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is telling us that that you know we human beings are in a state of loss unless yeah. we believe, unless we believe and do good deeds, unless we we preach each other or exhort each other to preach the truth, act upon the truth, and um. Um, and be patient, and that's sabr. That that patience is the real key to hardships. That that when you know that you're going through a difficulty, um, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel, and that is holding on to that that absolute um, belief that uh, Almighty Allah Subhanahu wa has uh, reassured us that He will be there for us and He will get you through it. Um, you know, there's a verse in the Quran, many people may not be aware of this. Um, I mean, outside Islam, I'm saying, and indeed, maybe, maybe, maybe people within Islam don't focus on it enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Almighty Allah tells us that, that He will test us with our wealth, with our, with our wives, with our children. With, you know, He will test us. Once you're aware of that, uh, from a Muslim perspective, then you know that, that when that kind of test or any type of test that comes like that, um, uh, there will be hardship for a period of time, but you will get through it. You, you at the end of the day, you will um, have to be positive uh, that you will get through it, and that's where you put your uh, your trust in Allah and put your trust in 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 patience, being patient, basically. Very well said. Um, lastly, if you could wrap it up with uh, some habits that can one adopt in their daily life to help achieve this inner peace and sense of contentment, please. Well, the first thing for me is reality, that you, you realize that the world isn't as perfect, as ideal as we would want it to be. There, there are all sorts of troubles, all sorts of tests, all sorts of difficulties out there that you will face in your daily life. So for me, as a Muslim, the first thing you have to do is develop the habit of prayer, of worship. Mm-hmm. Develop the habit of putting your absolute trust in Almighty Allah. I mean, just put your trust in Him. It's easy thing to say. It's an easy thing to to say. You know, it, look, I've always said this over the years <clears throat> to many people, many Muslims and many non-Muslims as well. It's very easy to say you believe in Allah or believe in God or believe in the divine until you're tested, until you're until you face some test. Mm. It's very easy to say that. It's when you're tested, but that's when you have to develop the habit of first and foremost as a Muslim, put your trust in Allah and. Keep your relationship with Him in your good times and in your bad times. And 
develop the, the habit of exercise. That's extremely important for mental health. Um, for mental health, you have to be physically strong, emotionally, physically, uh, spiritually. You, ha- you just have to be strong. And the one way of doing that is physical exercise. Never be afraid to reach out to a friend. Uh, if, you're, if you're a singular person who's not married, mm-hmm. male or female, never be afraid to reach out to someone and say, I need help, I need guidance. I'm, I'm having issues because a lot of people uh, bottle this up. So this is a habit. I believe um, people should not be afraid to reach out to a friend and say, I'm going through something right now. Um, I, can I talk? Can I sit down and talk to you? Um, and, and you will find, for example, uh, again, uh, many of our missionaries, including myself and imams, uh, we're here, we're there. You know, we're there to hear, we're there to listen. Uh, we're, we're ready to reach out to those who want to be reached out to. So, Basically, it's, it's developing all these habits that I believe, um, and, and being, and sorry, and being realistic and, and, and having reality in your mind as well, that there is a reality. For example, if someone is uh, starting a new business venture, spend a lot of money, put money into it, and it's not working out in the first few weeks, and they start getting stressed, starting getting anxiety, um, starting to get depression, these are all the points that you've got to keep as a reality, but you get through them. I think once you develop these type of habits, um, you will get through your. You will get through it um, as a Muslim. But more importantly, um, for me, at the end of the day, is that um, just put your trust in Allah. I mean, that's easy to be said, easier said than done. I know this, but I have found over 30 years now, uh, and been through so many things over 30 years. Um, I have found that once I've completely and utterly just decided, I'm putting everything in the hands of Allah. I'll do everything that I can physically in my physical and mental ability. But at the end of the day, I will put my prayer and submission to him. I mean, that's the beautiful um, um, Surah Fatiha, for example, just, just off my head now, I'm just thinking of this now. Surah Fatiha is such a beautiful prayer um, that if we ever really, truly realize this, the, the beauty of this prayer, which we pray five times a day, where we're recognizing the attributes of Allah, we're recognizing that actually there's none other than him, and we're really recognizing, to thee alone and only you and nothing else do we trust, and to thee alone and nothing else can help us. There's nothing, nothing in the world that can come against us that we cannot face unless you help us. I mean, once you have that in your mind, in your heart, and your soul, then you will get through that day that week, that month, that year, and you will, you will eventually, ups and downs are going to be there, you will find inner peace and tranquility, you, you will be satisfied with your, with your everyday life. Definitely. Thank you very much, uh, Imam Ibrahim Noonan, that's uh, all we have for today. I hope we can get you on the show some other time, but thank you Jazakallah. for joining us, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Uh, and to you, Jazakallah, thank you. Assalamu alaikum. That was... Uh, uh, it for today. Um, uh, uh, um, I would like to thank you know the producer and the researchers for all the help for the tech department, and uh, I hope we see you tomorrow again. Where we'll be discussing uh, the families struggling to feed their children at school. Uh, so tune in tomorrow at seven a.m. And uh, that is it for today. Thank you very much.